enemies of the people. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. Traitors. The single market's on its way back, and you're stabbing us in the back. Snowflakes. Snowflakes melt under pressure. Oh, do you know what? We've gone to the days when snowflake was a really nice word. <laughs> Gammons. Martin Bristol, you think you might be gammon? Older, male, overweight, red in the face. Is that sort of... You, are you those? That's or me. Is, is that you? I am. This is apparently the new language of politics. Knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Anger is all the rage, but is anger itself the problem? Anger is not a plan, my friends. Some people say we need to push back against anger in our politics and respond with tranquil civility. Civility is nearly dead in this country and we need to return to some basic level of bipartisan decency and respect for our opponents. But do these calls to be calm and civil run roughshod over the distinction between righteous and misplaced anger? Maybe anger is the only rational response to rising racism, injustice and crumbling political norms. You're listening to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about trying to understand the forces driving us further apart. Are they real? What can be done about them? It's presented by Ian Leslie and by me, Matthew Taylor. I'm absolutely sick of hearing you whinging all the time, except it's to kick fellow citizens when they are down is shameful. Sam, calm down, my friend. Sam, Sam, chill out, mate. This is war. You bet it's war. And it's the American people against you. Sick of your listening to your... Well, turn, turn the radio off then, Sam. Our economy is going to go down the pan. OK, you are on Listen, I think you ought to leave, you know, because... We're going to metaphorically stomp your ass in the ground. Just think basic manners do, do demand a degree of decorum. In this episode, we're asking, is anger in politics a good thing? Stop it! Coming up, we'll be talking to my friend Claire Fox from the Academy of Ideas. But before we get started, a segment where Ian and I lay our cards on the table. We, We try to set out what we know or think we know about this episode's topic so you can kind of place our views in some kind of context. We call it... Full disclosure. So, Ian, when it comes to anger, what's your starting point? Well, my cards today are actually borrowed from somebody else altogether. I read a fantastic essay by Martha Nussbaum, uh, who's a philosopher at the University of Chicago. Arguably one of our greatest public global public intellectuals. Uh, well, alongside you, Matthew, I think that's uh-huh. yeah, yeah, maybe. So, what Martha Nussbaum says, uh, you know, in in short, it, it's that anger makes people feel strong or big, or as she puts it, manly and important um, when we get angry about something. But the anger is rooted in fear, fear of loss of status and fear of loss of control. And most importantly, anger doesn't actually solve the problems that people are getting angry about. And she divides, uh, she talks about three different types of error that, that anger leads us into uh, in in politics as in life. So uh, the obvious errors are that we get angry about the wrong things. Um, The anger kind of shaves a few points off our IQ, right? So we get angry about things without checking if they're true or not. So you see something, you know, on the internet, a bit of fake news, and go, yeah, I'm really angry about that. So you don't bother to check the source because actually you're kind of enjoying the sensation of being angry. Um, We get angry with people for bad reasons. 
right? For, for, so Aristotle, who Nussbaum quotes, you know, gave the example of when somebody forgets our name, we get angry with them, sort of unreasonably, but we just do, right? So we tend to impute motivations to people that they don't have. We make mistakes about people's intentions all the time. And we're kind of tempted to, to get angry about things that, or at people for things that aren't actually people's fault. They're, they're just sort of uh, natural disasters or, or products of a stru- uh, structural products of, of the system. But this act of demonizing people uh, is something we're very drawn to, right? We're, like, we, we like to demonize uh, the establishment, immigrants. We like to pin blame and pursue the bad guys. And, and the idea that there are a group of bad guys who, who are screwing everything up is deeply consoling to us. It makes us feel in control rather than, rather than helpless. So in that that I, I read the piece and and I enjoyed it. It's uh, you know I, I recommend reading it. I, I kind of funny way though it didn't really get to the the heart of this thing for me, which is that I think we have to try to be able to distinguish between good anger and bad anger because anger is such a natural human emotion and and I think that 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 for me that's something to do with distancing. So bad anger is anger which in a way is about distancing yourself from the object of your anger, saying you are different to the person that you're angry with and exaggerating, as it were, the differences between us as as human beings. Whereas there's a different kind of anger which is about saying, look, you're like me, we are like each other, and, and I'm frustrated that given that you are made of the same stuff as me, you can't see this or you won't do something about it. And the Nussbaum piece was fine, but in the end, her kind of view that overall all anger is wrong, I, I, I don't really accept it. So that's a kind of starting point for our conversation. Ian's kind of with Martha, anger's overwhelmingly a bad thing. I kind of take a slightly different view of it, but we're going to be talking about this further. Now is the time, because she's been sitting there very patiently listening to us rabbiting on. Uh, now is the time to introduce uh, our guest, Claire Fox, who's director of the Academy of Ideas, uh, author of the book, I Find That Offensive, and of course, someone I meet regularly on the Radio 4 programme, The Moral Maze. And if that doesn't make you angry, you possibly don't have the anger gene. So, Claire, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Let's just stay on the topic of the history of anger anger in politics in particular so it might be kind of it might feel like we are in angrier times now than at, than at the re- in the recent past but do you think historically anger has been a constructive force i think in invariably in order to mot- be motivated by injustice that can take the form of anger i mean in order to get out of bed to put yourself on the line to fight for in what you consider to be justice, that can be driven by a certain type of anger. I don't know that it's what we're experiencing at the moment, but historically one can see that anger has been both a positive and a negative. I mean, my my, my enemy in this is kind of like that bitterness, kind of eating away that kind of destructive sense of anger isn't helpful. Obviously, something that makes you angry might be what turns you into a housing activist because you've become angry about the ill treatment of people. You know, just as in it. So that's obviously positive. The the contemporary times don't even seem to me to be angry other than a caricatured Mr. Angry. It's a lashing out. It's a kind of widespread anger at the other, whoever the other are. I mean, you you use those phrases at the beginning, Ian, gammon and snowflake. I have to confess that I've been credited 
as creating and popularising the term snowflake in the UK. Congratulations. Yeah. But I've actually just uh, uh, written a new introduction to the book in which I say one of the biggest problems at the moment is the delegitimizing of people through these kind of discussions where you don't even have to bother talking to them because if you're a gammon or a snowflake, it's a way of sort of going, what's what's the point in talking to them? So that's my point about distancing. The use of anger as a way of saying you are different to me. I can describe you in a way which means everything you say is in a box now. Exactly. And I don't have to seriously consider exactly. it. Well, yeah, it's, it's also, it's, it's Nazman's point about, about status. Um, and just just going back uh, for a minute, like, I do think that, I don't think she's dismissing the idea of anger, actually. I think she's saying something very close to, to what you were saying, Matthew, which is that, that anger is fine as a kind of um, starting point, but it needs to be uh, channeled, right? So so she talks about, uh, there's a section on Martin, Martin Luther King. He basically says, anger gets people to the meeting, Right, you know, anger brings people to our protest movement, but but once they're there, that anger needs to be, uh, as he put it, channeled and purified, right, in into into action, into kind of calm, cool, constructive, strategic action. Um, and I think it's that second stage that we're often missing because I think, as you say, Claire, we get stuck in this kind of uh, Mister Angry caricature where we're all just sort of bashing each other up and but down I, the status ladder. I, I suppose one of the dangers is to try and sanitise rather than civilise anger. And I worry about that because it can just make it bland and anodyne. You know, you can take the fire away. Now, one of the things that I thought about when she was talking about status, I think that's one of the problems we've got at the moment with kind of name-calling dismissal of people. We're actually delegitimizing people by calling them some pretty foul things. I'm speaking from personal experience, but, you know, there's nothing worse in terms of making me furious than having my motives impugned. Do you know what I mean? I used to be mm. in situations where I'd yeah. be arguing with people who didn't agree with me. But now when their assumption is that, you know, I can't book mention Brexit, but where the assumption is, is that, you know, the people who voted the way I did are xenophobic, anti-foreigner, racist. But they it's not that they assume, they say that, right? And then so they've delegitimized you before you start the gammon, you know, that kind of thing. Or, or, or dishonest. Or, dis, or, or you know, any so number, any number of things. Them. All I'm saying is you, your, your sense of, no, no, no. Even if you don't agree with what I've thought, can't you give me the benefit of the doubt that I did it in good faith. Yeah, no, I'm not, and it's not just me. I mean, that's what I think makes people furious. I think th- there's, no, there's no question that's right. And, and it's interesting if you look at uh, mediation techniques used in kind of war situations, the, the first thing you have to do is to get to a position where people can agree what they disagree about. Because the, the, the problem with the construction of most political debate is that it's of the form of me saying, I believe in fairness and Claire believes in unfairness. And, you, and and then you say, no, I believe in fairness, Matthew believes in unfairness. That's what most people hear about political debate. So it doesn't get us anywhere at all because we're just making contradictory counterclaims. Whereas actually what we want to say is let's try to work out what it is we actually agree we disagree about and then we can have a useful debate. So I'm interested, Claire, in, in something that I think you are angry about. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we're all kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure some people listening to this think, well, they're, you know, these kind of comfortable people saying anger is a you know, problematic thing, you know, they should live the life I live. But let, so let's let's talk about what makes us angry. And I, I think I'm right. Am I right, in Claire, in saying that you think that if we don't go ahead with a pretty hard Brexit, I mean, let's not get into the detail, but a pretty hard Brexit. Please, God, no. <laughs> You think the British people will be angry and that their anger is justifiable. And in fact, we should be very careful about doing something that might provoke that justifiable anger. Yes. 
<laughs> that's right. Um, no, so how does that I mean, square not, with your? I mean, how does that square with your? Because because that view, that view that any, if we don't have a hard Brexit, it's kind of betraying people. That sounds like the kind of thing you're worried about in other circumstances. No, I know, but I mean, I. I, I I don't think that one should be put off from saying things because somebody might think that you're using words that are harsh. <laughs> you know what I mean, so if people feel they've been betrayed because they voted one way, um, I think there's some legitimate. I mean, I, I always try not to use the betrayal word, but I end up trying to just use a euphemism. So I mean betrayal. <laughs> so um, uh, and that's because I'm trying to take it down a notch or two. If we can try and divorce it from what we're talking about, i.e. not Brexit. But my my sense of it was that people didn't vote Brexit in anger. They made a considered decision. This is not the way it's generally understood. I understand that. that. But this was my experience, was that people were very serious about their democratic uh, position of having this vote that they were told was going to make all the difference to the future of the country, that this was the one vote that would count, that in general elections your vote doesn't always count. At the beginning of the um, referendum campaign, we might forget this, but it was very dull, nobody was mobilised. I used to go to meetings where everybody would say, oh, no one's going to vote, it's mm. not going to be legitimate. And then there was this moment where it turned and people, everywhere you went, i tell the story about going to my mum's care home, every time I'd go in, the care workers were getting me in, discussing tariff. You're on the telly. You do Sky News. We're, dis- <laughs> we're having a row about tariff. <laughs> what? Um, you know, all this sort of thing. People were, you know, we're having a family conference. We're discussing this and all this sort of thing. So, you know, you'd go down the school, you'd go to the pub. Everyone was talking about it. So they took this vote seriously. They didn't feel as though they were being duped because they were taking themselves seriously. They were doing their own research. They weren't reading sides of buses. They weren't influenced so, by bots. So if you do that in good faith, never actually thinking you were going to win necessarily, and then the vote goes the way that you voted, and then the next two years everybody tells you you've made a terrible mistake because you were duped, because you were stupid, because actually it was a racist vote, caricature your motives, trying to delegitimize you. Mm then this, the burning sense of injustice about what you did in good faith is pretty important to take into consideration. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, so yeah. I, but, I get, but I get that. I, 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 you know, I completely get that, Claire. And I, I, my views about the debate and people have been shaped by some of the things that you've, you've said in the past and you're repeating today. But there could be an argument that says, well, is what you're saying that you, you, you deprecate anger generally, but not on the issues that you really care about, which may, probably makes you the same as everybody else. And what I mean by that is there is a perfectly rational, non-angry explanation of what's happened since the referendum, which is that, that we hadn't policymakers, not the public, but policymakers had not really thought it through. We didn't know what the European Union's response was going to be. We possibly had an unrealistic account, all of us, of what might happen. Yeah. We've now looked over the abyss. We can see that actually the advantages for people aren't nearly the ones that people might have hoped that they were going to have, that there are big disadvantages. And our policymakers, in, all, with all their problems and all their baggage, have just decided from, in the end, a publicly spirited view that they've got to say to people, look, we have tried, we've tried to give you what we want, but it, it ain't going to work. But my sense is, Claire, that if there isn't a reasonably hard Brexit, it won't be a kind of, well, they tried their best, but they couldn't pull it off. It's tough. It'll be the bastards have betrayed us, which feeds into a grander narrative that the man's, you know, the man is trying to screw the ordinary person. Will you be able to, will you adopt that position or will you feel the need to resist it if you don't get what you want? No, but it's not. So I think that you have to, to imagine that 
people didn't think they were going to gain a great deal of advantages in a very material form. Mm. So they did actually vote on principle in by and large. Mm. And also they heard endless litanies and lists of disadvantages thrown their way. So there was not uh, no sense of what might happen. I remember being at an industry conference and when I heard CEOs of major companies in this country saying that they were going to go back and tell people that they'd lose their jobs, I thought, God, there's no way we can win this vote because people will be frightened. So I was, and they did go back because it was reported they went back to, so to people, you know, if you vote, leave, you'll lose your jobs. And people sort of went, okay, I've heard you. And then they voted leave. Right, so what I'm saying is that when people say, we've really tried on your behalf, but we hadn't thought through the consequences, the voters had thought through the consequences more maybe than the policymakers. And there's a feeling that the policymakers have not been enthusiastic about the vote that was taken and have not therefore been doing the work in the background to make it happen. Now, I'm not trying to be naive. I'm not one of these people who thinks, oh, you know, Brexit is Brexit and get on with it. And I do understand something of policy implications. And I know that this is the conversation you're referring to. I am genuinely of the view that this sort of like we can't deliver what we promised to you is a very serious thing to do and people will be rightly angry. But one of the other things that annoys me is I think that you might be able to have this conversation if you look people in the eye and say, we're not doing a, a bit more honesty might count. Because partly people feel they're being sold a pop, they're being lied to at the moment that there's no, you know, it's like checkers deal. You know, everybody looks at me in the face and says, this is exactly what we promised you. And people are going, I've read the white paper. What are you talking about? Because now everyone reads white papers, of so course. So just, Ian, coming on this, I mean, I, I think there was a poll that said that over a quarter of the British public seemed to be quite interested in a new, quite right-of-centre party, you know, pretty hardline, anti-Islamic, anti-European, you know, anti-migrant. These are volatile times. That's why we've made a series of programmes called Polarised. Do you worry about what is going to happen if which I think the outcome is probably going to be we're not going to have as hard a Brexit as people want. Who knows? If that isn't the outcome, do you worry about what the consequences would be? And do you think in a sense that someone like Claire, who's on the other side of the bed, has a responsibility to kind of say to people, it's really tough to deal with, but try not to get angry? Well, uh, yeah, but the, but then the people on, on kind of uh, our side, I'm sort of on the, on the Remain side, um, have a responsibility to take the other side seriously, which we're not being, no, we're not very good at doing. So we talked about a piece of research we looked at a couple of weeks ago, where the research found that, that leavers are actually better at understanding why Remainers voted Remain than Remainers are, are understanding leavers. So leavers kind of say, you know, when they're asked to say, well, people vote Remain because of the economy, right? Which, you know, basically true. But but Remainers don't really get the leave case. And what, what they underestimate in particular uh, was the leavers' concern for, for sovereignty. And that that kind of overrode some of their their economic concerns, mm. right? Okay, now you can actually make a very powerful case that that, that this isn't going to increase our, our sovereignty, or, or, or you know, not in the ways that, that that people imagine. But you have to take that case head on, right? You, you can't say, oh, well, you just you know, these guys just did it because either they're racist or they get duped. And the idea that people are going to respond and say, hey, you know what? I was stupid enough to get duped. Thanks for pointing that out, guys. <laughs> um, it, it's just it's just crazy, and I, I think the emphasis on that is is really uh, just counterproductive. So that's a status thing. That's a that's a kind. Of, yeah. I'm angry, so I'm going to push these people down in status, and and that is completely strategically mm. stupid. So uh, yeah, I guess it's 
it's one of those situations where we might look back on it and say the problem was not so much that the referendum went the way that it went and that in the end we didn't have a hard Brexit. It was the way in which the Remain constituency dealt with that period and caricatured. If they'd kind of said to leave us, we respect you, we respect what you want, we've tried hard, yeah. we can't quite deliver we it. As Claire, as Claire said, looked you in the eyes and said, I'm yeah. sorry, folks, then we might be in a different position. But a lot of uh, delegitimising has taken place. And that goes back to your point, Claire, which is that a lot of Brexiteers have felt that what's happened is that their position and they have been caricatured. Anyway, let's. I just want to move on to one other topic before we come to our closing uh, sequence, which is snowflakes. Um, uh, Claire, you, 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 you may now have a place in history, uh, in the Oxford English Dictionary, as the person who originated the phrase snowflakes to describe a particular type of person on the left, I think, who, who feels deeply sensitive to any sense of injustice and indeed seems to be kind of searching for examples. Now, that does make you angry, I think. And and I think part of that is because you think this is about people searching for things to be angry about. Uh, I, I, actually, I was trying to be more empathetic, and um, I think it, this is an important point, just in terms of taking people seriously. I, I was interested in why a generation of young people, on all the kind of metrics and let alone the kind of anecdotes in America and and, and the UK in particular, but growing. Um, seem to be more easily offended and therefore more inclined to a censorious response to that. And I was explaining that the, the derogative term used against them is snowflakes, but then I addressed my book to them and talked about them. But I was actually trying to avoid the lampooning horrible snowflakes, so it's ironic. But anyway, there is undoubtedly a, an opportunistic group who egregiously seek out offence as a kind of attention-seeking, you know, it gives you quite a lot of power. You can close things down. There is no doubt people... I mean, there are people, I see them, trawling the social media channels, looking for offensive things so that they can complain and so on and so forth. But that's actually not really uh, uh, the mainstream. What what relates to this discussion, though, is is that I think that we've lost the sense of what robust political debate is about. And so we have reared a generation of young people who don't understand the importance of listening, of not imputing the worst motives to people, of um, there's a great thing in the Nussbaum of a description of a, a meeting with people from in the, from the 1960s with people from diametrically opposed views that actually have an intelligent, robust, quite feisty argument about... Um, uh, the, the society that they were living in, but which was a recognisable political discussion where they were actually generous to each other's understanding and so on, and they actually maybe got somewhere. They were also doing it for an audience. Now, what's now happened is, is that I do think that there is a trend that young people are frightened of those ideas and hide away from ideas which they see as challenging. They think they're being sensitive, but they call for safe spaces. 18, you demand safety. You demand to not hear ideas that might make you feel just uncomfortable rather than taking them on. And I think that's a crisis. Part of this is about people saying, my emotions trump rationality. Uh, in a sense, I don't have to give an explanation of why it is I find this. Yeah. I just find it offensive. And if I find it offensive, particularly if yeah. I am a member of a group that can claim to be or legitimately claim to be often depressed, that is enough. My emotional yeah. reaction trumps. My, so it's me, me, me for a start off. So it's my feelings at any, you know, can close down things. 
confused by identity politics, as you say, which gives it extra weight. So you do get this kind of oppression Olympics because in order to have more power today, ironically, in an intersectional world, you are more likely to be able to have the power to close down someone else and delegitimize them by saying, as a woman, as a black woman, and so on and so forth. What do you, uh, Ian, I'm, in, I'm uh, interested in what you think of Claire's thesis. Well, as someone who has no suffers from no <laughs> oppression at all. I'm I don't know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, what I'm interested in is whether or not. Uh, what you're talking about, Claire, is a phenomenon that is true of a whole generation, as you put it, or whether or not it's really we're talking about a, a, a small you know, minority of, of people who are very active and, and very loud in, in kind of shutting down debates and, and no platforming and so on. And actually, for most students, for most you know, people of that age, life goes on pretty much as it has done uh, in terms of their openness to, to, to other ideas and so on. Uh, and indeed, the, the idea that, you know, we, we want to shut people down and stop them talking is is not new either. I just reminded of that when I was watching a documentary about Enoch Powell a few, a few weeks ago, and there was a uh, there's footage of him talking, I, th- I think, at a university, and, and there were sort of students standing up at the back and shouting at him, shouting him, shouting him down. But in terms of the actual principle of it, yeah, I, I think, again, a lot of it comes down to wanting to de-legitimise that person for talking. So that actually, if you can say that's a bad person, uh, then you don't ha- actually have to even begin to, to, to consider uh, the ideas or, or the other side because you can just kind of shut out all the people who are bad. And then you're left up with, with the people you know who, who are good, in other words, people who think similarly to you. Um, and, and so you don't kind of engage with with the idea. So I was thinking you should be very wary before you kind of exclude somebody from the realm of, you know, legitimate debate. This is a conversation that could go on and on. And uh, my sense is, Claire, we should bring you back to talk about these issues when we have more polarised programmes in the autumn. But before we wind up, Ian and I like to identify something we've read that we find particularly uh, kind of interesting. And I'm looking at a a piece, I think, from the New York Times called Centrists are the Most Hostile to Democracy, Not Extremists by David Adler. And actually, this is a theme that we've come across a few times in this series. And so what Adler argues is if you look, if you ask people about democracy and their faith in democracy, actually, it's the people at the centre who are the ones who are least enamoured by democracy and most critical of democracy, which is a big surprise because I think one's intuitive feeling would be it's the people at the extremes, the kind of revolutionaries of the right and the left who are the ones who are least enthusiastic about uh, democracy. That, that you know, it, it's a bit of an echo of the conversation we've had in the past about the fact that it turns out liberals are more intolerant than, than authoritarians quite often, for example. So what did you make of that piece here? Um, I thought it was really interesting, but I wanted to establish now, how did he define uh, what a centrist is? And it's basically, it's self-reported centrism, right? So what he did was he gave people a a scale and, and said, where are you, you know, basically do a cross. Are you further on the left or are you right or the right or are you somewhere in the middle? And so centrists were defined as people who put that across somewhere in the middle. So I think he's actually confusing. uh, He's got two different types of people in the middle there. And he's not really examining this distinction between political centrists, as in people who say, you know, (laughs) know, Blairites or, 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 uh, you know, Clintonian kind of Democrats who are like, you know, we need to kind of find a way between left and right. And we believe in a mixed economy and, and, and so on. And 
most people who are like, well, I'm somewhere in the middle because I don't really think about politics that much. I don't really you know, I want to have to think about it. Um, and it's not something I have strong views on. So it doesn't really surprise me that a lot of those people right now are saying, well, yeah, democracy doesn't seem to be working great for me right now. So, you know, uh, I'm going to say um, I'm, not that, I'm not that keen on it. Claire, what did you think of the piece? So I, I think that there is a crisis of democracy at the moment because I think that if we consider some of the discussions that we've even touched on, people's view tends to be, when I've talked to them, democracy isn't working because the last time we had a vote, it went the wrong way. And I think that one of the reactions to Trump and to Brexit has been that democracy doesn't get you the right sensible result. And so I found that quite moderate centrist people are querying democracy. And I think, therefore, that, that it rings true because people are basically saying, oh, democracy doesn't seem to work. I mean, you can't trust the people to vote sensibly because they'll all be duped or stupid. And I think that's, in a way, what my concern about overthrowing a democratic vote will do is it will disillusion people. And just on the good things to read, I've just finished a book, a collection of essays. Quinton Skinner is one of the editors, but on um, a history of popular sovereignty. And I just mention it because it makes you realise how rich the rows and arguments and philosophy historically has been about what democracy is and what sovereignty is. And I'd really like to encourage a richer discussion on popular sovereignty, and I'd be very wary of trying to undermine it. So it's entirely appropriate to end our first series of Polarise that we're all going to disagree about this. So Ian wants to go to question the data, but also say, look, we need to think a bit more deeply about democracy. I think Claire wants to say this is, this is kind of right. Centrists don't, you know, don't like it when democracy doesn't deliver what they think it ought to deliver. My view uh, is that it reflects the fact that democracy is in a bad way and that we need to think about democratic reform and that our democratic institutions, our democratic processes are out of date and problematic. And people who've heard early programmes will know I'm a bit of an uh, obsessive about deliberative democracy, for example. So I think we need to kind of redesign our democratic system so that it, it, it works. And therefore, it's a reasonably rational view right now, even if you support the principle of democracy to say real democracy in practice isn't working. That's it for this episode, and indeed for the first series of Polarised. Thank you, Claire. Thank you very much, Claire. Good to be here. Uh, We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please rate us on iTunes, uh, tweet about us, uh, uh, post us on your Facebook page, just tell somebody about us, um, and uh, try not to be angry when you do it. Polarised was presented by Matthew Taylor and by me, Ian Leslie. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you by the RSA. (laughs) 